0: Uh, This morning is from Genesis chapter 39, verse 11 to 23. We ask you to stand for the reading of God's Holy Word. You'll find it on uh, page 42 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Genesis chapter 39, beginning with uh, verse 11. This is the... Uh, story uh, of Joseph and uh, his slavery to Potiphar, the uh, Egyptian uh, captain of the guard. He is uh, an attempted seduction by Potiphar's wife. He turns uh, away from her and she falsely accuses him and he is then cast into prison. And that's Uh, what the the whole chapter uh, is about. We're going to pick up at verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and he got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me, and he fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, That Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came into me to laugh at me, But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him, put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. May the Lord cause his word to quicken in our hearts. Please be seated. Let us pray. We come into your presence, O oh God, this morning, able to do so because, as the writer of Hebrews said, because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. We therefore can come with boldness in our time of need and find your grace sufficient. We thank you, O oh God that you are God, and that we are not. For day after day, we find ourselves thinking that our way is right, that we are wise in the ways of this world. And then we find out just how foolish we were, how foolish we are. And so we bow before you to acknowledge, Lord God, that no matter what the circumstance that we face in our lives, no matter how strange it seems to us or how hard it seems, because we are Your children, we can rest in this assurance that You know those who are Yours. And even as Job learned in that very difficult situation that he faced, that, God, You know our situations You care about our situations, and you are working in those situations for your glory, and eventually, as we will see, for our good. Oh Lord, there isn't a person in this place today who has not faced difficult times at one point or another, times when they felt overwhelmed, as the disciples did on that boat as the the waves crashed and the the, the water spilled over into the boat and threatened to sink them. And in that moment of terror, cried out to you, Lord, don't you care? And as you stood to calm those waves, you looked at them and you said, oh, ye of little faith, how long must I be with you? How long, O God, will it take for us to learn that you are sovereignly in control of every moment of our lives? That there is nothing outside the bounds of your hands. In some cases, our trials have come to us because we have sinned against you. And as a father disciplines his children, so you as our father discipline us. And we face some of the trials and tribulations because we have done wrong. And you are opening our eyes to see it, that we might repent, that we might confess our sin, and that you might cleanse us and purify us from that unrighteousness as we turn to you in faith, knowing that through Jesus Christ, even the most egregious of our sins can be removed by the powerful blood of our Savior. There are times, Lord God, that we face trials and tribulations, because you have dared to say of us, have you considered my servant Job, a man righteous in all ways? And Satan would test us. As you said to Peter on that night when you were about to be betrayed, Peter, Satan has desired to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that you might come through purified. And so we come before you on this day, asking you to teach us what it means to trust you, to believe that you are truly sovereign, to rest in that truth, even in the midst of a boat that appears to be sinking, and that we might find comfort and peace, in the one who is the Prince of Peace. And we pray this not only for us, as though somehow we were special, though we are special, we are a peculiar people, a holy nation, a people set apart unto you, called out by you from the midst of this world that you might lavish your love upon us as children of God. But we are not special and above ourselves. And there is a world that desperately needs you. And needs for us to let them know, both through the way that we live and the words that we speak, that you are God. And that you are calling upon them to turn and to be saved. And so this morning, as we look at This situation that Joseph has found himself in, not of his own choosing and not of his own making, but because you, God, take what was meant as evil by human beings and you turn it for the good. Open our hearts and our minds to this truth today, but we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that life has not treated you fairly? I suppose that almost everyone in this room at some point in their life has said life is not fair. That something has gone wrong. Now, some of those that bellyache that life is not treating them right in their difficult situations find themselves there because of their own behavior. In 1 Peter 3, we read, or 1 Peter 2, sorry, we read, For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it that you endure? In other words, If you have a child and that child does something wrong and you as a parent spank them or you put them in the corner or send them to their room. Well, we don't do that anymore because their rooms are filled with all kinds of toys and gadgets and stuff. But we separate them off. That child can bellyache all they want.
1: Kids
0: do that, right? And yet, they deserve it. And the parent, if they are a good parent, has punished that child, not only because the child deserves it, but because the parent wants to see a change in that child's life so they might mature. Excuse me. (coughs) Sorry. I do have a cold still from last week. We live in a culture of whiners, claiming to be victims, and even though many of them have dug the pit into which they have fallen, they cry, victim. They blame it on their upbringing, they blame it on their circumstances, and just about anyone and anything else but themselves. Did you know the Bible never gives us an excuse, ever gives us an excuse, for sinful behavior sin is always a choice that you have faced when you've been tempted when there've been a trial and you've fallen the scripture tells us because you have yielded to that desire no one not even satan has made you do it But Peter goes on, after saying some of the difficulties that you're facing are of your own choosing. He goes on to say, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Joseph shows us that. Joseph shows us that those who live God's way, seeking first His kingdom and His glory, even when the cost is great to them, can remain faithful, no matter what the temptation, no matter what the trial. So as we look here at Genesis 39 this morning, we find the truth, the theme of this passage which is, Jesus said that those who seek first the glory of God must hate even their own lives to be his disciple. Did you get that? Those are Jesus' words. Those aren't Pastor Chris's words, they're not the words of some scholar or theologian. Those are Jesus' words. That if you're going to seek first the kingdom of God, if you're going to seek the glory of God, you have to hate even your own life. Now that, certainly, is not the prosperity gospel. Had we had the baptism this morning, you would have heard me ask the baptismal candidates four questions. The first question, have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Now, that's important. We don't just say, have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because there's a lot of people that make that claim. A lot of people say, I asked Jesus into my life to forgive my sins and to save me. But they've never trusted him as Lord. They they have never surrendered their life to him. The second question says, have you confessed your sins and received forgiveness of those sins? And and, and that, the Apostle Paul says, is part of what the gospel is. He says, we preach to you the forgiveness of sins. Without the forgiveness of sins, we are still rebels against God. We are still seeing our own lives in our own way and accepting that whatever we've done, God's going to get over it. It's not true. Without the forgiveness of sins, there is no remission of those sins. Third, do you promise by the power of the Holy Spirit to live your life in accordance with God's Word. In other words, if you're truly a believer, and you're entering into those waters of baptism, you're saying, I'm dying to myself. And I'm living for Christ. For me to live is Christ. And that means that I live as Christ lived, seeking to walk in obedience to God's commands, seeking God's way in how I live, asking him every morning when I rise up, God, what do you want me to do today? And when I face the trials and temptations, I say, God, I know you're in charge of this. How do you want me to handle this? But there is a final question, one that I've just recently uh, added in response to our study of the book, Gaining by Losing. It says, do you surrender your all to God, no matter what the cost or where he calls you? Do you surrender your all to God, no matter what the cost or where he sends you? Joseph said yes to that. Joseph said, yes, God, wherever you send me, I will go. No matter what the cost, I will trust you. We ask those questions to baptismal candidates so they take seriously, as our first point says, that believers' lives are identified by purity. Believers' lives are identified by purity. Now, there's a number of other things that a believer's life is is marked by, identified by. Jesus said that they will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And there are other ways that, that we manifest that we are children of God. But this concept of purity is a critical one for us to understand. You see, purity doesn't necessarily mean that we have no sin. Purity, as the Bible defines it, means having a single God-focused purpose for living. If your eye be double, Jesus said then you're going to be blind. You're going to be walking in darkness. If if your eye is trying to see two different things, if you have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, you're going to be lost. Purity doesn't mean having no sin. Purity means you have one single focus for your life, and that is God. No matter what the Lord calls you to do, or asks you to suffer for His name's sake, the believer embraces it, no matter what the cost. I want you to keep your fingers in Genesis 39, but I also want you to flip over to Psalm 73. Because we're going to be going back and forth between these two chapters. Psalm 73 If you're looking in the Pew Bible, that's page 616 and Genesis 39. It's not uncommon for people who believe in Jesus Christ to think that he is their ticket for health and wealth. The false prophets that are out there today teach you that if you have enough faith, God wants you to be wealthy and healthy. This name it, claim it, false gospel has captured many people and is sending them directly to hell. But it's not a new concept. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 73. It says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Oh, if I'm pure in heart, then God's going to be good to me. I'm going to receive all the covenant blessings. Everything is going to go smoothly and wonderfully in my life. Now, Joseph might have come to that conclusion. God is good. God is loving. God is my Father. Everything in life from this point on, because I've trusted in Him, everything is going to be good. Even after Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery, he could look at his life and say, yeah, God is still good. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. I mean, doesn't the Bible say that all things work together for the good of those who love God? Things are going well for Joseph. At least through the first six verses of chapter 39. But something else was just about to happen. But before we see what happened, notice that believers model survival. Not survival of the fittest, but survival of the faithful. Joseph, here in our text, he's been sold into slavery by his very own brothers. Now, he could have whined and complained about that, right? He could have gotten angry and become bitter about how life had treated him. He could have given up and crawled off into a hole someplace. He could have committed suicide. Or, like the Stoics, he could, with Doris Day, have gone through the motions of life singing, All right, we'll be, that's right. Could have gone through life that way, right? Instead, he set himself to be the best slave that he could be. He lived as the Apostle Peter would instruct believers nearly 2,000 years later to do. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As has been said, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. So, survival of the faithful. But notice that believers also model success. Oh, that's a a, a big term that's, that's used today in many locations. God wants you to be successful, to be prosperous. Joseph, however, did not have the philosophy that God helps those who help themselves. Long before the Puritans came up with what is known as the Protestant work ethic, Joseph practiced it. Protestant work ethic means that as Christians, We are to work diligently. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. Working diligently, not as men pleasers, not when the boss is around, but working as though you were working for God. 24-7, living in a way that God would be pleased. Fulfilling the creation mandate work for the glory of God on those six days. Joseph was a model of this. Whenever and wherever Christianity has gone to some place in this world, the educational, the economic, and the ethical levels of that new place has risen. Paul warned in Second Thessalonians 3, verse 10, from which we get this Protestant work ethic. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So Joseph sets himself up to live for the glory of God. Even if he was going to be a slave, he was going to be the best slave. Using his God-given gifts, using his shape, to glorify God wherever God placed him. Verse 3 says, His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. I have often said that as Christians, we should be the best at whatever we do. If you're a scientist, you ought to be the best scientist that there is. Politician, be the best politician that you can be. Doctors, custodians, policemen, teachers, mechanics, I don't care what the job that God has you in, what the place is that he has put you, do all for the glory of God. Now, I wish I could say that if you do that, you would be blessed like Joseph was here. But if any so-called Christian teacher tells you that that's going to happen, they are a false prophet. Turn back to Psalm 73. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Things are about to change for Joseph. He's going to find out what most Christians who live for the glory of God will discover at some point. It is what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy when he said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe, but will be. You cannot shine light into darkness and the darkness not respond to it. Do everything right. Live for the glory of God wherever you are, wherever he has placed you, and the ceiling may still collapse on you. Proving our second point, believers often, are faced with perversity. Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Live for God's glory and you will meet the perverse side of human nature. So notice that believers meet seduction in trying to break us down and pull us down, to take that light and dim it in our lives. The psalm, Psalm 73, continues on through verses 5 through 12, and as the writer goes through that psalm, he shows us just how blessed the world is, how many things go right for them and seem to go wrong for us. The wicked prosper. They cheat. They lie. They steal. They murder. And they get away with it. The rich get richer. And the poor, well, they get trampled on. And sometimes it seems that there is no justice in this world. There's a popular saying, though if you can't beat them, join them. If you can't beat them, join them. You know what? I'm doing all the right things and I'm getting hammered here. You know what? Maybe if I kind of fit in a little bit with them, maybe things will go a bit smoother uh, for me. The psalmist almost falls for it. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. God's people look at the world, see the way the world is living, seeing how they prosper. And instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to continue with God, they want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back there to to that place. They turn towards them, and they say, how can God know, is there knowledge in the Most High? Since God hasn't done anything to them, then he probably won't care if I do what they're doing. Ask the politician who goes off to Albany or to Washington. They have good intentions. They're going to go there to help their constituents. But not long after they arrive, they find that you're not going to get much done unless you compromise. There's got to be that give and take. And the swamp eats another do-gooder. Joseph is confronted with that situation here. A handsome well but slave, catches the eye of his master's wife in verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me, sleep with me. Now, if this was a traditional marriage of the Middle East, then it probably was an arranged marriage. And very often in an arranged marriage, it is a younger woman who is... Connected through that marriage to an older man as a way of profit for the family. Chances are then that Potiphar was an older man, and perhaps his wife was younger. We don't know that for certain, of course. But we do know that she's looking for a lover. But why not? Everyone does it, don't they? A wife at home and a mistress in Washington. We in this congressional district are familiar with that kind of scenario. But you know, it isn't just sexual seduction that we face. You want to keep your job at school? Then bow to the politically correct approach to teaching. To become a partner at a law firm, well, you know, you got to fix a few of those cases. You work in finances, help the company out with just a little bit of financial manipulation. Before long, you find that your conscience no longer bothers you. You fell under the spell of survival of the fittest rather than survival of the faithful. Notice also believers meet sabotage. The seduction of the world, and if that doesn't work, if they can't bring us down to their level, then they're going to sabotage us. They're going to try to undermine us. Now and then, some Christians take a stand. They will not compromise. They know the Scriptures. tells them to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And they will do that. But that verse goes on, it says, in essence, all the rest is going to fall into place. If I seek first God's righteousness, his kingdom, then everything else will take care of itself. Doesn't that mean things will go well for me? Joseph takes a stand. He lives in covenant faithfulness. And then when she seeks to seduce him, He gives her three great reasons why he cannot do that and why she shouldn't want him to do it. We see that in verses 8 and 9. But he refused, and he said, or he reasoned with his master's wife. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept anything back except you. Because because you're his wife. How then can I do this wickedness and sin against God? You see those three arguments? First, The Master trusts me completely. He's seen my integrity. He's seen how I lived, and He trusts me completely. But the Master has withheld you from me, rightfully as He should. You're His wife. But most of all, to do so would violate my covenant with God. I am here to live for God's glory, to honor him in all that I do. And she goes, oh, great argument. I understand now. Is that what she did? Of course not. She continues to try to seduce him. Joseph remains firm. She continues on. He remains righteous, he remains godly, he remains faithful, and everything, of course, is going to work out for him, right? No. Instead, she becomes spiteful. She turns on him, she sets him up, and his world collapses. His master, who is the captain of the guard for Pharaoh, happens to have a dungeon that he's in charge of, and Joseph is imprisoned with no chance of parole. No trial, no witness, no hope. Sabotaged by a spiteful woman. Look at Psalm 73, verses 12 and 13. They hit the nail on the head here. He says, Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease, they increase in riches, all in vain if I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. How does that make you feel? That wicked woman got away with it, and she probably went to bed that night laughing. Maybe she even tried to seduce her husband that night, who knows? She has no sense of remorse about what she has done. But where does that leave Joseph? Psalm 105 describes it this way. Joseph sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. You may never have been in a physical jail locked up that way. But have you ever felt that you were in a similar situation—a situation that had collapsed upon you? Look at Psalm seventy-three, verses fourteen and fifteen. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning, and if I said I will speak thus, but I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, I feel like complaining. I, I feel like everything is wrong, but. But God, I'm not going to turn against you. Just because it's happened to me, I I can't become the means of destroying others. You might look at your life, and you might wonder why the wicked, why they seem to flourish while you struggle. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, He said that at times, we as people feel like we are of all people the most miserable. Because we can't take vengeance. We can't strike out. We can't turn around and sabotage them. We can't be the Stephen who gets even. And so we are of all people most miserable. But third, notice how believers then may question their poverty. Oh, and I'm not talking necessarily about financial poverty, though you don't find a lot of really wealthy Christians. Some are, though. But when we're talking poverty here, we're talking about poverty of situation. Life hardly ever seems fair. Bad guys win, good guys lose. But notice that believers may mistake submission to the situation. As losing. You see, Joseph is tossed into prison. And he goes down and went out of fight. As far as we can tell. Verse 20 lays it out. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. No ifs, ands, or buts. You're there. Tossed away as garbage from the culture. Guilty with no chance of proving innocence. If this was a movie, you and I would be looking at that movie and we'd be going, poor sucker, can't catch a break. You know, I hear that often from even those who are professing Christians about their lives. Everything is stacked against me. It just keeps piling on again and again. Why is it, my friends, that we can so often fail to practice what we preach. We talk about God being sovereign. We sing about God being sovereign over all until trouble knocks on our door. We claim the promise of Romans 8.28. All things work together for the good. We go to Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? until sickness comes, until our job disappears, until the financial market collapses and it takes our life savings, until our family member cheats us out of an inheritance, until some other trouble comes, and suddenly God, who was sovereign over all, has become tiny. The genie is back in its little oil Controlled by outside forces in our mind. He has let us down. He's failed us. But is that how Joseph responds? No. Joseph goes on as if nothing had changed. He went right on living for the glory of God in his new situation. He might have shackles on his arms and hands, but there was no shackle on his heart. The result, look at verse 22. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were with him in prison. Joseph, you're in prison. Crawl up in a corner. Become the strong man. No, no. Joseph just simply went about being who he was, living for the glory of God. No, woe is me. No, this isn't fair. Just let me live for God wherever I am. <coughs> Living for God is like a marriage vow. Joseph has said to God, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. This is my solemn vow. So notice then that believers may mistake surrender as giving up. This is no que sera moment for Joseph. Submission means we not only say, I surrender my all to God no matter what the cost or where he calls me, we actually do surrender we, we, we say, whatever it is, God, I surrender it all. No matter what the cost, or where you call me, I'm yours. But, you know, sometimes we could do that without the heart behind it. But does the soldier on the battlefield, is it machine guns or being shot, and the mortars are falling, does that soldier say, it's not fair that I have to fight, that I'm being shot at, that I might even be killed? No, that soldier took an oath. They took an oath to stand, to fight. Nick Foles, quarterback for the Jaguars, when injured, was asked if this affected his faith. So week after week, not playing. You're a football player. You're watching this young kid go out. This mania is going crazy. I know you're a man of faith, and I know you're trying, but you're also human. I mean, there ever any doubts coming up in your mind? as you go through that?
1: No, that's where you know. Right when this, right when I felt this thing break, and I was going into the locker room, I just realized, you know. I just realized, God, this wasn't exactly what I was thinking when I came to Jacksonville. Obviously, you come here and you want to create a culture and impact people. But at the end of the day, I like, got, this is the journey you want me to go on. I'm going to glorify you in every action, um, good or bad. and. You know i still could have joy in an injury um and that that's people hear that and say that's crazy but it's like when you believe in jesus and you you go out there and you play and that's that changes your heart and you only understand it when you know that purpose in your life just like when i hoisted the lombardi trophy the reason i'm smiling is my faith was in christ in that moment i realized i didn't need that trophy to define who i was because it was already in christ and that's my message when i play same thing happens when i get injured we tend to make this so much about us as human beings. We tend to make it about us as athletes. It's not about us. It really isn't. And if you make it about yourself, you're probably gonna go home at night, lay your head on your pillow and be very alone and very sad. And then hopefully someday you can find that purpose in your life because my purpose isn't football, it's impacting people. And I, my, my ministry happens to be the locker room. And I've been able still to get to know people, get to know these guys through an injury. Though I might not be playing, that is difficult from a fleshly perspective but from the spiritual perspective from my heart I've been able to grow as a human being to where I feel like I'm at a better situation here as a person than I was before because of the trial I just went under and I know that's a sermon in itself but that's how I go through life and the good Lord's been there to you know it's not always about prosperity I don't believe in the prosperity gospel I believe if you read the word of God and you understand it there's trials along the way but they equip your heart to be who you are so um, when I step on the field, I'm going against a man and Frank Reich, who's very similar. He's a guy that I admire more than anything. He's a guy that has impacted my life so much, and he's going to be on the opposing sideline, so um, that's going to be fun.
0: Amen. That's right. Nick Foles said it well. The prosperity gospel is a lie. is a deception. By Satan, is only by studying the Word and examining the lives of biblical saints do we see what Hebrews eleven teaches—that the world is not worthy of those who, though tortured, and flogged, stoned, sawn in two, yes, killed, for the sake of the glory of God, lived by. so our last point this morning, believers eventually recognize true prosperity. It's not in material things. Turn off the Benny Hens, the Kenny Coplums, the Joel Olsteins, and the Joyce Myers, and the rest of those who have done what Peter protests against in 1 Peter 5. When he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you willingly, not for shameful gain. They fleece the sheep. And one day they're going to stand before the Almighty God who hates shepherds who fleece the sheep. And they will be judged. But instead, notice that believers manifest steadfast love. See, John wrote in 1 John, We love because he first loved us. Up to now, I've focused our thoughts on Joseph. Looking at this man who stayed faithful to the glory of God no matter what. But in this chapter, Joseph is not the hero. Joseph is another man just like you, just like me a man with faults but look at verse 21 but the lord was with joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison the lord is the hero in this passage joseph was just the means by which god showed forth his glory Any success that Joseph had was not because Joseph was a hard worker, not because he was a smart guy or that he was well-built and handsome. It was because the Lord was with him. It was God who was overseeing his life, organizing every step of his life, including those things that seemed to be bad. That same God who gave Joseph favor with Potiphar and then later on with the keeper of the prison is the same God who allowed Joseph's brothers, particularly Judah, to sell him as a slave to the Ishmaelites. And that permitted Potiphar's wife to lie about him so that he was imprisoned. It was that same God that allowed him for 13 years to be a slave and to be imprisoned. The Lord was with him. And the Lord was showing him steadfast love through every moment. In that way, Joseph stands as a type of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect example, Peter tells us in 1 Peter. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Joseph, who's betrayal by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver and then subsequent imprisonment after being falsely accused, Joseph prefigures the one who is the perfect example the one who did nothing wrong and still was falsely accused, who still faced seduction, temptation, trials, even to the point of death, and through it all said, I have come to do your will, O God. So, notice that the believers not only manifest the steadfast love of God in their circumstances, but they manifest sweet communion no matter what the circumstance. Look one final time with me at Psalm 73, verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, how to, to look at life and see the wicked surviving and, and, and being blessed and, and, and everything, and the, 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 the godly suffering, when I looked at all the circumstances of life, it seemed to me a wearisome task Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. That is one awesome word. Oh, it might not be as great a word as Sean shared with you a few weeks ago. But now, (laughs) but it's one awesome word here. Until, oh yeah, I looked at the world. I saw how they were blessed and and everything seemed to go right with them and and how everything seemed to be going wrong in my life. And I looked at them and, and my feet almost slipped, he says. Almost slipped. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. In that sweet communion with the eternal God of the universe, where Job finally enters in in Job 42, as he begins to understand the character and nature of God, his eyes are open and he begins to to see that in the midst of the ship, as the waves are crashing over it, that Jesus is there. He is in the midst. He sees the glory of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. And he knows that any father who allows that to happen to his son must really care a great deal for me. Joseph succeeded. As verse 23 declares, because the Lord was with him And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Still a slave, still imprisoned, still chains on his head, iron around his neck. And he succeeds. He succeeds. But you know what? You and I aren't Joseph, are we? No, we're not Joseph. We were Judah. We were the betrayers. We were Potiphar's wife. We were the seducers. We are Potiphar, the one who imprisoned. You see, we sinned. We're the ones who rebelled against God. We were the ones who declared that Jesus was not going to be Lord of our lives that said, I want to go my way, God, you go your way. We were the manipulators. We were the failures. We rebelled against the Creator. We were responsible for the crucifixion of His Son in the flesh. If He had not shown His great love to us, if He had not poured out, his grace on us but for the grace of god there go i it is a god who turns jacob to israel from a scoundrel a rebel against the most high god it is that god who gives us success. It is that God who changes our hearts. It is that God who opens our eyes. It is that God who reaches down into the depths of our brokenness and lifts us up. In baptism, we acknowledge that we deserve the judgment of God as we go under that water, that we deserve the death that Christ died for us. But God, rich in mercy. You want to be a Joseph? You can't be the Joseph without the cross. You can't be the Joseph without the new birth. You can't be the Joseph until you say, Lord, I need you. It is not me. It is you. And so, in conclusion, I ask you, How do you face temptation? Do you face it by whining and complaining that life isn't treating you right? Or do you face it with purity? Single vision, God-focused, trusting that He knows what He's doing, that He has allowed this to happen in your life. Are you willing like Joseph to flee from that temptation? Are you willing, like the young men of First John two, are you willing to fight against the evil one? Or do you give in? Do you allow the seduction to suck you down because you failed to count the cost of what it means to be a Christian? Let's pray our Father in Heaven we cannot understand the greatness of this situation that that Joseph faced until we know what it is to stand and not fall when temptation or trials come our way But we cannot do it unless the Lord is with us. There may be some in this room today. Father, you know the hearts of every individual. There may be some here today who think that they're good. They think that that you're going to accept them no matter what they do or how they act. And that they have the right to say no to you. Because they've never been to the cross. They haven't died to themselves and they haven't said, where you lead me, I will follow. Oh, Lord God, show them today. Show them their heart. Show them your greatness. So that they cry out today, Lord, I need you. I cannot live this life in righteousness apart from the truth that the Lord is with me. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to meditate upon that. If you're here today and you have not gotten to that place in your life, you're still looking for the prosperity and and, and the you know, health, wealth kind of thing, and, and thinking that, that well if I do the right things, if I say the right things, if I have the right amount of faith, somehow God's going to turn everything beautiful for me. He didn't for his son. What makes you think that you're better? No. You are not better. But there is this truth. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Lord, I need You. Wherever I am, whatever I'm going through, let Him lead you. Surrender your all to Him. If you've never asked Christ to come into your heart, do that today. And if you have, then stop living for yourself and start living for Him. Would you stand As we sing our closing song, Lord, I need you. Uh